Well, thank you, Josh. That was great. I didn't understand much of that second part, but I did get the line, you go quick time. Did you get that? <laughs> so that's actually the whole sermon today, so we could just call it a wrap if you want. Well, thank you for your support for our missionaries. They're out in adult big groups right now sharing more of their stories. We appreciate them, but we really appreciate your encouragement to them. And there's actually three other things you could do to encourage them today. One would be on your way out to pick up a copy of our brand new, fresh, hot off the press missionary family prayer guide and put it on a coffee table or your dining room table and flip through it and pray for these folks during the year. Another way is that you could actually today pick up an ornament from our missionary Christmas tree. There's a Christmas tree out here, and the idea is that you'd pick an ornament, would have one of our missionaries or their kids' names on it, then you would send them a gift before Christmas that would arrive to encourage them over the Christmas season. So make your way to the tables right outside these doors and grab an ornament and encourage our missionaries that way. And then finally, you can come back tonight at 5 o'clock. We're going to do probably the most important thing we can do for our missionaries, and that is to pray for them. We're going to meet at 5 and pray for our global outreach program for these missionaries. And then after that, there's going to be a dinner provided. So hope to see many of you back tonight at 5. There's also copies of the book Scatter by Andrew Scott, our speaker last Sunday that we, we ran out of last week. So those are available in the foyer as well. Now will you pray with me as we turn to God's word. Father, our prayer this morning is the prayer of the psalmist that you would show us your ways, O Lord, and teach us your paths. Guide us in your truth and teach us, for you are God, our Savior, and our hope is in you all day long. We're ready to hear your voice. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, this morning we're going to begin at the end of our service because we're going to do something a little differently today. We're going to give you an opportunity to express publicly if the Spirit of God is stirring in your heart, like we mentioned last week, to take your job and move it. Now, we don't usually do this here at College Park Church. That's why I want to prep you a little bit. What we're going to allow time for the Spirit to do is if God is moving among anybody here who could answer this question with a yes, we'd like you to come up at the end of the service and we want to pray with you and contact, connect with you about how you can take further steps. And here's the, sen here's the sentence. Based on what the Spirit of God is moving in my heart, I commit to actively pursuing God's will regarding using my skills to live in the darkest third of the world. So we don't know yet if that's going to happen for you or not, but today we'd like you to make a commitment if the Spirit of God is moving. And we just sang, if wherever God sends the wind, it obeys, and we need to do the same thing. So today is actually a zero pressure time from me. But there might be pressure from the Spirit of God, and we trust that He will have free reign to move in your lives as we listen to the Word of God and begin to think about this question, where should you do what you're doing? We'll turn to our text, Luke chapter 14, if you haven't got that open already. And Jesus was a master teacher. I, I noticed that Jesus often didn't seem to have an agenda, things that he was trying necessarily to teach, but he just took life as it came and illustrations that happened in the normal flow of life and he, he took spiritual applications and then taught people from those and that's what he does in our passage today. The beginning of the chapter, Jesus is at a dinner party. In fact, food is the theme throughout the first half of this whole chapter. There's the dinner party at the beginning, and then he speaks in 7 to 11 about where to sit when you go to a wedding feast, and in verse 12 about who to invite when you put on a dinner, and then our passage today that is also about a banquet. 
And this is a topic that we love to talk about, isn't it? Food. It's getting a little late in the morning already because um, I bet you that there's somebody in this room who's already thought about lunch. You're thinking, where am I going to go? What am I going to eat? Because breakfast is kind of gone and you're beginning to think about that pleasure of eating. That's how God's made us. That's a good thing. In fact, I found out doing a little research that our our tongues have 5,000 taste buds in them. And each taste bud has 100 receptor cells. That's astounding. So that means when I have a caramel milkshake from Dairy Queen, my 500,000 receptor cells are very, very happy. And you're thinking about making yours happy as well. See, Jesus takes how we're made and he moves from there into important spiritual truths. And in verse 14, Jesus mentioned the resurrection of the just. And one perceptive man deepens the conversation and he begins to talk about spiritual matters, about the kingdom of God. And he says in verse 15, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, it's not always a wise idea to speak in Jesus' presence. Uh, But this time, Jesus doesn't condemn the man. He doesn't commend him either. He just begins to elaborate further on that feast in the kingdom of God. From the Old Testament times, it was the expectation of the Jews that there would one day be a great feast for all of the people of God. And our current worship of God is just a foretaste of that eschatological feast. We can picture it perhaps first in the table of showbread in the tabernacle where every week new loaves of bread were put out to remind people that he feeds us spiritually. The Jews had three major festivals during the year that were all feasts. They always ate together. And then Isaiah begins to crystallize and formalize this vision. And he says in Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. A feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away, away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Jesus talked about that feast as well, and he said in Matthew 18, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And then in this passage, Jesus, just before he gives his life the next day, he's having the last supper with his disciples, he says to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before my suffering. For I tell you that I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And here in one verse, Jesus ties all of redemptive history together. He points back to the Exodus, the first great redemptive act of God to free his people from their slavery. He's in the middle of the second great redemptive act of God, giving his life, that, his, bread, his body and his blood that will free us from our sins. And then he's pointing to that final great banquet that we will enjoy with him forever because of his redemption of us. And this picture is most perhaps beautifully summarized at the end of the book, the end of the Bible, Revelation 19. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And the angel said to me, Write this. 
Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. It is about this feast now that Jesus tells our story in Luke 14 today. And I want to go back through the story and look at the three main players in it with you. First of all is the host, verse 16. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. In, in Greek, this word is literally a mega banquet. This guy was throwing the mother of all parties. And it says he invited many. Back in that day, these kind of large parties were an important social event where you wanted to see and be seen, where relationships were strengthened or developed, and people loved to come to these kind of parties. And here's some things we learn about the host in this story. First of all, he's generous. He has prepared a great feast. He has bought tons of food. He's given specific instructions, I'm sure, for how it should be prepared and laid out. And it says he invited many people to the feast. Secondly, he's persistent, verse 17. And at that time, and at the time for the banquet, he sent a servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. See, before the days of cell phones and Outlook calendars, you had to tell people ahead of time that there was going to be an event, a party, but then the day of, you actually had to send somebody in person to remind them, yeah, this is the day of the feast and the food's on and it's time to come. And so that's what he did. He really wants these people to come and enjoy his largesse. So he sends out his servant a second time to say, now the party is on, time to show up. Thirdly, the master can be offended. Look at verse 21. Then the master of the house became angry. Why was he angry? Because the first people who had been invited declined the invitation. And he took that personally. It was an offense against him. And then fourthly, the master does not show favoritism. Sure, at the beginning he invited his friends and people of perhaps the upper crust of society, but when they didn't come, look at who he invites in verse 21. The master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. He's opening up his party now to people who normally would not get invited to these kind of functions. And even when that invitation has gone out, there is still room in the house. And so he says in verse 23, go out to the highways and hedges and compel the people to come in that my house may be filled. The highways were the freeways that take you far away from the city to the edges of the kingdom. The hedges that we've just sung about now for two weeks in a row were those uh, plants that divided the fields. And so what this means is this is out in the countryside. This is at the very ends of the kingdom. And he's saying, send people, go and invite people from the corners of our whole country and bring them into this banquet. Why? Because he said, my house must be filled. The master doesn't want any seats empty at his banquet table. So that's the host. Secondly, the invitees. You know, it's the surprise twists in Jesus' stories that really catch our attention. And they're the ones that we really learn the lessons from. And, and the first surprise twist in this story comes in verse 18. But they all alike begin to make excuses. Now, who is going to refuse an invitation to a dinner party? Imagine that the governor, for instance, invites you to a state dinner at the governor's mansion on Meridian. You would clear your calendar that evening, I'm sure, and probably the next day you'd be out shopping for clothes. 
because you want to go and enjoy being in that kind of a setting. Weddings in Pakistan, where I've spent many years, are very similar situations. Nobody ever refuses to go to a wedding. Now, one of the reasons they don't refuse is they don't want to disrespect the family. But the real reason, you know why they never refuse going to a wedding? Because they love to stuff their faces. <laughs> and let me tell you, you have not seen a wedding feast until you've been to one in Pakistan. We were shocked the first time we went. You wait for several hours and eventually tables appear laden with rice and curry and bread and then it's just like a feeding frenzy. People attack the table. They, they don't just get their food and move back. They get their food and stick their elbows out, keeping room there so that they can fill a second plate and sometimes a third plate and they just throw the bones of the chicken down on the, on the ground and have at it. They would never consider not going to a wedding if somebody else is paying. And that's, we all love free food, don't we? That's what Jesus' point is here. This is strange. What, what happened? Well, look at these excuses that they make. The first said to him, verse 18, I've bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Now, you've got to see the humor here in Jesus. He's bought a field? Like, what's the field going to do in the next 24 hours? Can't you go tomorrow and see it? Another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen. Oh, he's a rich man. Most people, if they had any, had just one yoke of oxen. But basically, this guy's bought himself a new tractor, and he can't wait to go try it out. And I want to say to him, you mean the tractor's going to run up and, and run away? Why couldn't you do that another day? And then maybe the best one at all, another said, verse 20, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. And I want to say, so what? You're not going to go out for the next 50 years? You see, the, the point is that these people didn't really want to go to the banquet in the first place. So they offered up flimsy excuses. They didn't have any real interest in the host or his activity. Their own lives were more important. They were caught up in their own finances, their own possessions, their own family, and they had no spiritual interest in what the host was about to provide them. Notice how things end for these folks. We saw already that the host became angry with them in verse 21. And then in verse 24, for I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. He said, not a single one of them will get a single bite from my banquet. So that's the host, the invitees, and thirdly, the inviter. Now we turn our attention to the person who's been more in the background in the story, but he plays a critical role. He's called a servant. And in Greek, it's the word meaning bond slave. And today in our egalitarian democratic society, which is all for the good, but we have no idea what this term actually means. This is not a partner in business. This is not even an employee. This is somebody whose services have been purchased for perhaps all of his or her lifetime. And this person's one goal in life is to please the master. And you see that in this servant's attitude and activities, his responses throughout this whole story. In verse 17, he goes personally to the invitees to say that the time has come. In verse 21, he reports the excuses back to the master, and then he's given another job to go out into the dark parts of the city where the blind and the lame and the outcasts are. He doesn't complain, but this is a risky job. These were dangerous parts of the city, perhaps. He might get mugged. He might get dirty, he might have his reputation sullied, 
But he doesn't ask any questions like that. He just simply obeys the master. And then I love what he said in verse 22. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. This servant is like Radar O'Reilly in MASH. He knew exactly what Colonel Potter was going to ask before he even asked, and he had finished it before the words got out of his mouth. And that's how he strikes me here. He knew that the master wanted a full house, so he says, basically, I got that. That's covered. And then the master says, I've got one more job for you. I need you to go to the very ends of the country. A servant does not balk at his master's orders or offer up alternative suggestions. A servant just does it. Well, still there is room. There must not be room. So he has one more assignment. And look at it in verse 23. Look at the two verbs for the servant. And the master said to the servant, go out. That's what we're talking about today. You see, you can't invite everybody by sitting where you are. This servant had to get up and move and physically take himself to the reaches of the kingdom to invite people. You can't do this job from where you sit. And we can't do the job of world evangelism from where we sit here. So some people are going to have to get up and move. And then it says, compel them to come in. See, the time for just simply inviting is over. It's time for some more extreme measures to be taken. Why? So that my house may be filled. You see, the more who enjoy a feast, the greater honor the host receives. And you know what that's like, don't you? If you throw a party and you've got two people that show up for it, you're kind of bummed out. Nobody cared about me. Nobody respects me. I don't have any friends. But what happens on your block when there's cars lined up for three blocks around going to a certain house for a party? What do you say then? You say, wow, that is a legit party going on in that house. That host knows how to have some fun. I wish I knew them. And that's the picture that he's giving us here. This host is so generous that he wants his house to be filled and he wants everybody to know what a gracious and generous host he is. Well, what's the meaning of this story? The beauty of Jesus' teachings are that he speaks eternal truth within an historical context. And I'm sure you've picked up a number of these lessons already. God is the man. God is the host. He is the master. He has prepared a sumptuous banquet of delights centered on the work of the Messiah who through offering his body as a sacrifice opened up the curtain into the most holy place. And that offer has been given first to the Jews. You see, Jesus is in the house of a Pharisee, a Jewish religious leader. And what he's telling them is, you guys are the chosen ones. This party was first for you. God went to great lengths to secure your eternal joy through sending the Messiah to deliver you from your sins, and now you're rejecting me. The prophets were sent to you again and again to invite you to partake of this feast through faith and repentance, and you turned your backs on them. But first, this message was for the Jews. 
That's why Jesus told the Syrophoenician woman, for instance, who had a daughter who was possessed by an evil spirit and asked Jesus to help her. He said, should we take the bread from the children and give it to the dogs? See, he's calling non-Jews dogs. And, and the woman in her faith persisted. He said, well, even, she said, even the dogs get to eat the scraps under the table. And Jesus loved that faith. And he said, yes, I'll do it for you. But first, he says, I've come for my people, the Jews. And that's what the story is about at its core. So I, Paul said in Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation, first for whom? For the Jews, and secondly for the Gentiles. But the Jews rejected Jesus in spite of repeated invitations. Other things were more important to them than eating at the master's table. And so now two things happen, the master says. First, you who have rejected me get nothing. Verse 24. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Jesus said in Matthew 21, Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. The second thing that happens is now the master turns his attention elsewhere to the Gentiles, to the nations, to the outcasts, basically to you and to me if you're not a Jew here this morning. Well, how do we apply this story to our lives? There's four lessons I'd like to, us to learn today. The first is that God's invitation is to a feast. Now, this is, of course, figurative language. It's symbolic, religious, spiritual language. I don't think we're going to probably eat food like we eat here when we're in heaven. But what's the picture? The picture is in terms that we understand, but it's talking about something deeper. You see, God has delights. He has satisfactions. He has joys for us beyond our wildest comprehension in store for us in heaven. And that is the banquet. That's why the psalmist said, they feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. And David in Psalm 63 again says, My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With joyful lips my mouth will praise you. Well, what is the food? The food, my friends, is God himself. And if that doesn't interest you, you haven't understood the glory of God. That's why Jesus said that I am the true bread who came down from heaven to give life to the world. And anyone who eats of me will live because of me. What God wants to give us in this sumptuous feast is himself. And through Jesus, he's opened the way for us to come freely by faith now and one day by sight, and we will enjoy God forever. So I wonder this morning if you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. If you don't have some of that flavor in your mouth, you're not going to be interested in taking the message, the invitation to anybody else. But if you have tasted the delights of fellowship and friendship and sonship with God, you'll want to share that with someone else. Are you enjoying him today and are you eager to be with him, which Paul says is better by far, that one day now, Without faith, you will see him and enjoy him forever. That's the first lesson of this parable. The second is that God's invitation is for all. God shows no favoritism. Now, this was a hard lesson for the Jews to understand. 
The Messiah was their Messiah. He had come to bring them salvation. And that's why God had to give Peter the vision and acts of the sheep that came down that was filled with all kinds of unclean animals. And, and Peter finally learned from that experience that God shows no partiality. This invitation is open to every single person. And Peter himself then wrote at the end of his second epistle, chapter three, verse nine, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all Jew and Gentile alike should come to repentance. That's why the commission is for us to go and make disciples of all nations. That's why the very last thing Jesus said to the disciples was be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth because this invitation, this feast is for everybody. But the question I have today is, do we as his servants show any favoritism? Well, you probably think not, and maybe you've never even thought about it. In spirit, I don't think we are necessarily being biased or discriminatory, but in practice, we are. And here's what I want to show you. The way the church has... Well, let me start with this. So if... if the news is for everybody in this whole map. Half of the people in the world live in that circle. So what does that say about that circle? We need to be sending lots of inviters into that part of the world to make sure everybody gets an invitation. Our world today is divided up into about three-thirds, about a third of people just generally are Christians or claim to be Christians. A little more than a third know the gospel. They've heard the gospel, but they've rejected it. They've said, no, thank you. And a little less than a third are living in what we call the darkest parts of the world where they have no access. They've never heard an invitation to the banquet. You see, this, my friends, is discrimination. And what does that look like on a global map? You may not be able to see this very much in detail, but every dot represents 50,000 evangelicals. And if this were a batch of dough and the dots were salt, you would not want to eat the bread. What's the problem? The problem is that born-again believers are not very spread out in the world. We're clumped together. And people without those dots around them are living in places where they do not have access to the gospel. So what do we need to do to, to rectify this picture? We need some of the blue dots to move, to go out quickly to spread ourselves out more evenly because the number of unreached people is growing in the world as we heard last week by 60,000 every single day. And this is one map that I show every year at REACH because this to me shows where the darkest third of the world is. The red areas of the world are places where people do not today have access to the gospel. And what this map tells me is that whether intentionally or not, we have been discriminatory in how we disperse the message of the gospel. John Piper says, Christians care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. And I want to ask you this morning and propose this to you. Christians care about all discrimination. We do. And we're, we're working on that here as a church. But we especially should care about eternal discrimination. Because this map shows us where people are currently being discriminated against and that they're not receiving an invitation to the wonderful feast that God has prepared for them. Thirdly, God's invitation has an expiry date. He won't always keep inviting, nor will he always keep the door open. 
There comes a time when hearts are so hardened that God rescinds the invitation like he does in our story today. That's why when he sent the 70 out two by two, he said, go into a town and if they do not receive your message, what are you supposed to do? Just keep pounding it into them? No, he said, shake the dust off your feet because they've had a chance and they've said no and you need to go to the next town because they might receive it there. That's why he said to his disciples, don't spread your pearls before swine. They will just trample it. There's an opportunity that people have, but that opportunity, some point, comes to an end. And if you're here this morning and you've never yet knelt your knee and confessed Jesus as Lord, let me warn you today that the invitation is still open right now. But one day that invitation may be taken away from you. Your heart will be so hard that you will never be interested in it. The door will be closed, as Jesus said in Matthew 25, when the bridegroom comes back and you will never have another opportunity to get into the feast. So today for you should be the day of salvation, if that's you today. The fourth lesson is that God's invitation is given by his servants. So here's where it comes back on us. Who else? You see, we are the servants. Our job is to invite. And I believe according to this story, there comes a time to turn from those who have had repeated invitations and turn towards those who have never even yet had one. And when does that time come? Well, there's no certain number of times. But if our telling somebody a tenth time or a twentieth time has a net result that somebody else will not hear it the first time because we have limited days and limited energy and limited resources, then I think it might be time to turn from those who have heard again and again and again. Oswald J. Smith, a pastor in Toronto years ago, said this once, why should anyone hear the gospel twice before everyone has heard it once? And that resonated me, with me as a young man and actually helped direct my life to those places of the world where people have never even heard it once. But something always bothered me about this statement and that was it wasn't in the Bible. But you know what is in the Bible pretty much? We could almost say it this way. Nobody should hear the gospel three times before everyone else has heard it once. And to invite, we're going to have to have Paul's ambition Paul said at the end of Romans 15, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel where it is not known, where Christ has never been named, so that those who have not seen will hear and those who have not heard will understand that God has riches in store for those who will believe in his son. The tragedy is that many in our world today have not even heard that there is a banquet at all. And who's gonna tell them if not you? My friend, this is not a sermon for the person next to you. This is a message for you. This is not the time to say what Moses said, here am I, Lord, send Aaron. <laughs> don't, don't do that today because we need to go out. That's what the servant was commanded to do. In fact, it's one of our six core values as a church, the call to go and yes, this does mean that we need to go out from our homes, we need to go out from our churches, we need to get into our neighbors' homes, we need to, to penetrate our community with the gospel, and that's one reason that we're considering how we can do that more effectively right here where we sit at 96th in town, and that's important. But the picture is much larger than that. We must go out way beyond that 
to the red parts, to the darkest parts of the world. And when I say we, who am I talking about? Not just these folks who came up here on stage and you applauded so graciously. I'm talking about you folks in the pews who know Jesus. You're the servant if you've given your life to Jesus. We must go out, and vision trips are a good way to start doing that. We have about 17 trips planned next year, five of them to Cuba where you're going to be able to help a family get clean drinking water and at the same time share the gospel with them. Two trips to London where you can be on the streets sharing the gospel with Arab visitors and a number of other opportunities. If this is a scary thing for you, this is a, an easy place to jump in and to, to go out and begin to do what the servant is required to do. But this morning, we're zeroing in on something even bigger than that. We're, we're zeroing in on you actually taking your skills and your job and moving them to the darkest third of the world. And I believe this message applies to perhaps 90% of us here this morning. Virginia Lassen came up to me after the first hour and I said, Virginia, you're excused. She's one of our old saints here and we probably wouldn't want to send her anyway. If, if, because she's doing a great job here praying for this work. So if you're over 90, probably excused. If you're under 8, probably excused for right now. But if you're between 8 and 90, the call is for you to think about and maybe even respond to the Spirit of God to this question, where should I do what I'm doing? See, God's given you talents, he's given you a job, he's given you skills, and just take those skills and uproot them and move them. Spread the salt out because the servant is required to go out. There is an urgency. Go quickly because one day soon the door will be shut. So don't even wait till next reach. Let the Spirit of God work in you now because people are needing to hear the invitation today. And then it says we are to compel people to come. And if you're a good theologian, you probably wonder what in the world that means because we can never make anybody be a Christian. That's by God's grace alone. But I think what he's saying is that we need to work as if it did depend on us. We need to have the spirit of Paul who said in 2 Corinthians 5, knowing the fear of God, I persuade men. And later in that chapter, he pleads with the Corinthians, please be reconciled to God and have your sins forgiven so that you will enjoy that feast for all of eternity. And so the question for you is, what are you doing and where are you living to extend God's invitation to the 2.7 billion people? And here's the challenge. We love home. We love family. We love our restaurants and our cars and our facilities. And the uninvited, we talk about unreached a lot. This is our word for today now. The uninvited live in the hardest parts of the world. You have to get on an airplane. You have to go through time zones. They don't really want you there. They don't want your message. They're happy with what they're having already. Yeah, there's a lot of obstacles, but the church has been saying that for generations, and that number of unreached people still keeps growing because very few people are willing to get up and move. And in order to go and invite them, we're going to have to become like the Moravians, German believers in the 18th century who God gave a burden for the African slaves on the island of St. Thomas in the West Indies. And in 1732, an African man named Anthony came and explained to them how they were going to be able to fulfill this vision. 
They said, you as white people from Germany are never gonna be able to impact those slaves if you go over and just preach to them. There's only one way you can connect with them and that is if you go as a slave yourself and live like a slave so that you can communicate God's love in their context. And so two men, Johann Dober and David Nietzschmann, were not phased at all by that and they said, if that's what it requires for us to take the gospel to those slaves in St. Thomas, that's what we're going to do. In fact, we're willing even to die for the sake of Jesus if that would re result in one soul coming to salvation. In fact, they went even farther than that. Anthony had a sister who had been taken away and was a slave on St. Thomas. And these two men said, if we can just get there and give her an invitation to the banquet, that will be worth it all. And as the ship pulled away from the dock and they waved goodbye to family and friends, not knowing if they would ever be back, they raised this rallying cry that we have actually just sung in one of our songs this morning. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. See, my friends, they had learned this lesson, that to love the souls of men, we need to love the Savior of men. And so in order to go and invite we're actually going to have to become ultimately like Jesus. And as we close, here's what Jesus did for us. It says in Hebrews 10 that when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, Father, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Because Jesus did that for us. We can do it for him. And then the author goes on to say, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. My friends, it's gonna be us sanctifying our bodies, our lives, and giving them to God and letting him move us wherever he will. So the way we're gonna close the service today is we're gonna sing a song. There's gonna be an opportunity for you to just come forward if God is working in your heart. And you want to just say this, I don't know how this is all going to work out. I'm scared, but I'm willing to actively pursue the will of God in taking my skills and my job to the dark part of the world. And if you come forward, we want to meet with you and pray with you. And after a song, then I'll close us with a benediction. So let the Spirit of God do His work in your heart as a child of God as we sing this song.